This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington. I am the host of the podcast, Transformative Principal and author of the book, School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings everyone, I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and cyber traps for expecting moms and dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, cyber safety, and today, social media. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. We are pleased to announce that the Cybertraps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyberethics, an independent, nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyberethics as a positive social force 
through research, curricula development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. Buoyancy Digital is proud to be the inaugural mission partner for the Cybertraps podcast, a digital advertising consultancy with an ethos. Buoyancy was founded by Scott Rabinowitz, who's been in digital media since 1997 and has overseen 300 million in youth safety compliant ad buys across all digital platforms. For IAB, Google, and being accredited brand and audience safe advertising sales solutions, media buying, and organizational training for media publishers, please reach out to Scott at buoyancydigital.com or at Scott R Media on LinkedIn. Greetings there, Jethro. How's the West Coast? The West Coast is great on this fabulous Monday morning. Excited to be here today. Well, I am as well, and I am particularly pleased that we have a live guest today, someone I've known from the tech world probably for a decade or more now that I think about it. And it is my pleasure to introduce David Ryan Pulgar, who is a pioneering tech ethicist, responsible tech advocate, and expert on ways to improve social media and our information ecosystem. David is the founder of All Tech is Human, an organization committed to building the responsible tech pipeline by making it more diverse, multidisciplinary, and aligned with the public interest. As the leader of All Tech is Human, he has spearheaded the development of three recent reports, Guide to Responsible Tech, How to Get Involved and Build a Better Tech Future, The Business Case for AI Ethics, which I think is fascinating, uh, <laughs> moving from theory to action, and most recently, we'll get into this today, Improving Social Media, The People, Organizations, and Ideas for a Better Tech Future. A couple of other important things to let you know, in March 2020, David became a member of TikTok's Content Advisory Council, providing expertise around the delicate and difficult challenges facing social media platforms to expand expression while limiting harm. And I love this, the main through line throughout David's work is that we need a collective multi-stakeholder and multidisciplinary approach in order to build a tech future that is aligned with the public interest. Really well done, David. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. I mean, I did feel good about that until, uh, you know, Fred, I always hear about your your bio with so many books. So, it, you know, I think as soon as I'm done with this uh, this time together, I'm going to get cracking and, and write, a, <laughs> write a book because you're quickly becoming the uh, James Patterson of digital citizenship and making me feel quite uh, quite uh, lazy. So I need to, uh, to get a little bit more uh, well, happening in that, that space. Yeah, for <laughs> that's, sure. That's great of you to say, David. But if you find me on at like eleven thirty at night doing an ad on cable television, you'll know it's gone too far. <laughs> we'll see how this works together. But no, it's it's an honor to be here. Uh, you know, fan of, of of what both of you are doing. And uh, to that point, we do need more individuals talking about this. But not only just talking about it, but coming up with collaborative ways to to work together. Because I really think if you look at twenty twenty one. We're caught in a high awareness stage. We all know there's problems with social media. We know there's issues, but you have differences with, with educators and parents, especially. And then you have admin, which has more kind of like a, a legal type of type of perspective often. And then you have tech companies and you have policymakers and you have media and you have advertisers, all different stakeholder groups that oftentimes are not uh, connecting, uh, even though they play a part. Uh, and really a lot of what I try to do is by knowing these different parts of the puzzle, I can have a fuller picture on some of the problems that are facing social media and what we can do to, to fix a lot of these issues. Well, I think that's a really good intro. I, I think 
one of the things that's fascinated me, one of the reasons that I've enjoyed talking to you so much is that you really seem to be one of the first people to identify the relationship between technology and ethics, or at least to understand that there were some new issues arising. Mm -hmm. So you created this concept, I think quite literally, of Mm -hmm. the tech ethicist. So give us a little background. How did that come about? Um, What drove you? What drove me is you, you would understand this for your background as, a, as an attorney and, and my own background as an attorney as well. And just kind of also having this multidisciplinary leanings, you really saw, especially throughout American history, right? And I'm coming, uh, you know, as an American and, and sitting in New York, you really saw how, especially with the civil rights movement, we've created so many different rules around how we can have a better society. So, for example, in my own work, when I was seeing the rise of social media or specifically with Facebook, what really seemed incredibly apparent to me is, wow, this is just a train wreck that's that's waiting to 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 happen. For example, uh, you know, we spent so much time creating rules around discrimination, making sure that we don't discriminate based on immutable characteristics like race and gender, national origin. And then in most states, something like political affiliation, right? Whereas when you looked at how Facebook was was growing, you said, well, wait a minute. Everything that in the offline world, we've created safeguards around, we've seemed to disrupt that very model by saying, okay, let's create a profile that we're going to then sell over to advertisers. And on it, we're going to list our political leanings, our affiliations, what we're thinking about, and the very purpose of social media, oftentimes through the business model, right, of, of kind of as a lot of people talk about with like the attention economy, right, it's, it's based on gathering better information about a user. The difficulty I saw right off the bat was, well, wait a minute, we've created, you know, so many laws, so many rules around ensuring that we don't discriminate based on, let's say, housing. So a few years ago, when you saw ProPublica coming out there saying that people were running ads where they were leveraging the, the kind of uh, fine-tuned nature of, of profiles to actually say, I'm going to discriminate based on race. I'm going to discriminate based on all these parts that we as society have viewed as, as inherently wrong, right? So it seemed like something where most people at that time, this was probably about 2012, most people weren't connecting the dots fully to say, this isn't just social media. Social media is changing how I live, love, learn, even die. It, it alters how I get news. If it alters how I get news, then it's altering my actual human existence. Because as we saw with the, uh, with the January 6th attack on the US Capitol, the information ecosystem is directly tied with the future of our democracy. And that a democracy, a thriving democracy, which is threat, is under threat across the, the globe right now. Uh, a thriving democracy is contingent on a sense of shared truth. And what I saw a bunch of years ago was, well, this shared truth is at is, is in harm's way because we are changing our very information ecosystem. And then on, on another issue related, how we even think about the public square. At that time, it's, it's hard to remember now that we're living through this, this tech, tech lash, 
But at the time, it was we were on the opposite spectrum of the tech clash, where we were looking at Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg as as heroes of of democracy. And we forget this now, but this is what what people were thinking, especially around what was going on with with Egypt, and and how you could leverage Twitter as a platform to spread democracy. So. Looking at that from, from a background as, as an attorney, you, if you talk to attorneys, they tend to think of worst case scenario. You, you talk to a technologist, especially a founder of a startup, they will always give you the best case scenario. They'll say, okay, if you self-select and we get all the greatest people and, and nobody's a bad actor, here's how things are gonna happen. Whereas the reason why I think a lot of attorneys and sociologists and psychologists have been very involved in this responsible tech movement is because their actual training is based on saying, how could this go sideways? So for, for a lot of people, myself included, when I was looking at the rise of social media in 2012, I wasn't just seeing the, the silver linings. And that's great, right? We, you know, there's a lot of obviously incredible positives. But I was also looking about how this could be perverted, how this could be misused, how a lot of these assumptions, especially around the information ecosystem, these assumptions were really based on a cyber libertarian viewpoint of the marketplace of ideas. And anybody with a legal background is, 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 is you know, partially obsessed with, with thinking about how this marketplace of ideas works because it's, it's involved in so many different landmark cases, right? So we oftentimes have debated that in the United States about how good ideas spread, how do we allow other bad actors to kind of come in? How do we think about this? And especially how the United States is different than our European counterparts. But the, what I was seeing is that how social media was disrupting the information ecosystem, it was really threatening our very conception of this kind of laissez-faire, you know, marketplace of ideas, how they're just going to naturally sort itself out. Right. Say, well, wait a minute, this could be weaponized, it could be amplified. It's, it's not considering how an algorithm tends to be determined by a platform and how that really alters how information spreads throughout a system, right? We're not always getting access to it. There's a lot of different parts to, to it. So, so to kind of come back fully uh, to, to answer your question, uh, in that in that time period, 2012, 2013, I really committed to say, you know, I, I want to make this my my life's work. I, uh, I really saw a need to say this isn't about tech. And I think that's something I, I always want to emphasize. These are social technical issues, right? Social media, whether we like it or not, is tied in with the future of democracy. It's tied in with how we communicate with one another. It's almost a prism for all of society right now. So, so how, do you want, how do you want that prism to go, right? What, what do you want it to kind of retract? And, and that's the, the important part I always kind of think about. So throughout my life, I, I, yeah, I pushed uh, you know, the, the concept of tech ethicist, the idea that we have technologists who are often uh, seeing a problem and then creating a solution. Whereas a lot of the work that I do is actually looking at those proposed solutions and seeing the inherent potential flaws from that, right? By actually saying, okay, what are the potential, you know, uh, negative externalities or unintended consequences that we could have with it? In well, other words, yeah, sorry. No, David, if, if I don't mind, I think that that's Please. where the foresighted piece is really interesting because if you go back, 
you know, to 2012, you're talking almost a decade ago. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, you're absolutely right. We were in the height of the Arab spring. Mm -hmm. It felt wonderful. We were all kind of patting ourselves on the back, right? Because we imagined that we had perfected the democracy distribution model. Yeah. And I think what's been interesting, and this is actually the subject of my next mainstream book, The Rise of the Digital Mob, is that we generally didn't anticipate the potential weaponization, right? Mm -hmm. That the Mm -hmm. Arab Spring would be followed by Cambridge Analytica. And then we would see a very different use of this micro-targeting that you're describing. So let me ask you this. I mean, you're, you're touching on one of the fundamental issues here. What do you see as the future of truth then? How do we, yeah. you know, imagine you're a parent, right? And mm-hmm. you've got issues of, you know, child raising issues. What are your goals in terms of helping your children develop a truth-based approach to the world? And what should schools be doing? Is there a role for them as well? Yeah. And can I clarify yeah. a little bit first before we go on? Because I, the the Arab Spring situation where we were excited about democracy, that was also weaponization. But because mm-hmm. it was what we were trying to put out, it was the right kind of weaponization, right? And well, so that's fair, fair point, right? Right, yeah. and and that's the piece where one, how did we not recognize that that could later be used against us? First of all, and then two, that question that Fred asked about. How, what is the future of truth when, uh, when we are the ones who are pushing it, it's exactly, it is truth and it's what should be happening when somebody else is pushing it, then it's, uh, it's an attack or it's a weaponization against us. And how do we, how do we use those charged words to, uh, to teach our kids correct principles? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot to unpack with there. And I think the first part that I would unpack, because I do also have, uh, a note, notepad that I'm taking copious notes as, as you're speaking, because there's a few parts that I, that I want to emphasize. And, and the first part is actually, I think, important to, to a lot of the work that I, that I personally do. And it's that we need to back up on that very statement of saying, we didn't foresee this. And I think that's, that's a tricky phrase. And it's tricky because what I'm seeing from my perspective is that there are individuals with a variety of backgrounds, like I said, my own background uh, as an attorney, educator, and then you have a variety of backgrounds that are getting involved, artists, designers, advocacy groups, sociologists, psychologists, game theorists, you name it. They could have predicted this and they have predicted this. So everything that has happened with social media, where it's standing in 2021, is a surprise to people setting the agenda with social media, but is it is not a surprise to people who have been writing books about what could go wrong. It is not a surprise for people who have been saying, let me help you out. I have research on this. Let me get embedded. So where I see a lot of this issue headed is, is really around the, the dynamic of power, right? We, we need to diffuse the power structure from a lot of social media companies in order to ensure that you don't have especially, you know, like a company like Facebook, like one person, it's, it's anti-democratic, frankly, one person should not have that much power. So that's actually the, uh, the trap that that's really kind of being laid right now, that there's no way around. And it's that if we view social media as intertwined with democracy, then by its very logical extension, you would take the CEO and view them almost as a politician. And when we relate to Facebook, 
or let's say Twitter, we actually relate to Jack Dorsey and, and Mark Zuckerberg as if they are elected officials, right? We ask them to make these kind of like decisions as if they're like the president. And, you know, that, that even this idea of techplomacy, countries are relating to social media companies in terms of relating to them, like, like a State Department. And that's pretty fascinating because what that also means is that the only, at least in my viewpoint, the only way that this can extend down the road is if, is if you either diffuse some of that power away from those, those tech companies or, or maybe and, but and or the, uh, the leaders have to have some accountability to the general public. Because the issue we're in is that these tech companies, social media companies particularly, they were started as kind of like, hey, we're a private business, right? And that's the way we, we think about that, especially under something like Section 230, the Communications Decency Act of 1996, which everybody is, is now debating. Well, tech leaders have now become these quasi-governmental leaders. But the way a democracy, as we know, works is that you, you would want to have the ability to vote somebody in and out of office. You want to have the ability to have your voice heard. Those are all the issues that social media companies are struggling with right now, because that's why they're talking about issues like transparency and accountability, and especially all the stuff happening with, with you know Trump and, and, and Facebook and Twitter. That was all dealing with how do you make sure that people are treated evenly across platforms? Well, wait a minute. That's exactly everything we focused on throughout free speech, you know, debate over the years of talking about you can't make something arbitrary and capricious and that, you know, you need to treat two people the same. Uh, and, And if you're writing this rule, so kind of like the terms of service and community guidelines, which act in tandem, they're actually kind of working like statutes, right, to a large extent. And I think that's why even with Facebook's oversight board, we tend to call it a Supreme Court. And granted, that has its own issues. But it's still it's still showing that our relationship with social media is now becoming, whether we like it or not, but it, it seems to be tilting more towards this like governmental. And even if we look at that, uh, you know, Trump statement or or a lot of statements, we like to say, hey, you know, TikTok, hey, Twitter, hey, Facebook, you're 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 curbing my freedom of speech. Whereas that's actually the opposite of the way it's currently structured, right? Because it's the state actor, it's government that represses your speech or infringes upon your speech, not a private business. And interestingly enough, in the United States, we give businesses a free speech right. So so it's a very complex issue. But but I wanted to, to go to your question too about schools. Where I'm seeing a huge issue right now is that this is very similar to large complex topics like crime and and uh, safe driving. We'll take safe driving because I think it's, it's very apparent, especially with areas like digital citizenship. Whereas digital citizenship, one way to think about it, it's, it's akin to this education that you're getting and then you're a, a form of like a license, so to speak, that you would have with any type of safe driving. And the reason why I think it's, 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 a, it's a good uh, analogy for education is when somebody says, hey, how do you make the road safer? If somebody asks you that question, it's not actually an easy answer because I would say, well, we want to have educators educate individuals how to how to drive. We would want to create a license type of program and ask people questions and have them study for a test. And then we'd also want to have personal responsibility and empowerment of the driver to make sure when they get in the car that they have their hands on 10 and two and they're, they're looking in the rear view mirrors, right? Oh, wait a minute. We also care about the car that they're driving to make sure that that's safe 
Therefore, we want to do testing on the car. Wait a minute. We also want to make sure that they're not speeding. That's one about the individual responsibility, but two, it's also about creating a uh, structure with governmental officials through the police force who then are pulling somebody over if they're speeding or driving erratically. So the point is social media, similar to safe driving, involves individuals and related through an educational structure, but it also depends on more socially responsible companies and a proactive uh, governmental body that's correctly setting up safeguards to to uh, to kind of you know make a, a safer system. So I think that's the biggest part. So specifically with schools and social media, seeing a huge need with how do we incorporate this digital citizenship, media literacy type of training, or even I would go a little farther right now, we've seen the impact in recent years about memes. Well, meme literacy really should be a more central part of media literacy. It frankly usually gets kind of left, you know, it's kind of like a side kind of, hey, you know, who, who's talking about these <laughs> memes? Well, guess what? Memes are, are, are are leading to conspiracy theories, but they're also leading to wild stock prices. Like, you know, it's GameStop kind of wild. Right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> actually, David, let me pick. Yeah. Let me pick up on Jethro's point, which I think is is related to what you're discussing. So, you know, actually, I was a victim of a drunk driver when I was 18, like three weeks before I went to college. So I have thoughts on this whole issue, as you might imagine. Um, But it seems to me that that the analogy is good up to a point. Right. Because, you know, as I'm you know, I'm absolutely sure you understand, you know, there's a big difference between the societal agreement to reduce physical risk. Mm-hmm. on on the roads with these incredibly powerful devices and the challenge of determining what are our shared values with respect to ideas and speech, right? And this is something Jethro and I have discussed numerous times. And, and it really is very, very difficult because the whole point of the First Amendment is we have all these different ideas. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on where we go with that. Is there a mechanism for creating those kinds of widely shared social values in terms of an idea-based resource? We're going to definitely need more involvement, especially from teens. And I think this is a part that, that we need great expansion on. So most social media platforms really are kind of geared towards a younger audience. I mean, that's even the way trends work. Trends tend to start in, in high school and in college and then expand out, right? Harsh but true. <laughs> and so that's, that's the way it works. And what's been tough is, okay, if here, you know, I serve on TikTok's content advisory council, right? So you have a lot of positions like that that are cropping up. But I think the next step that's going to have to happen is you're going to say, okay, well, you know, I try to empathize and relate and understand and research and talk to, you know, 16 year old and understand like their social media habits. But at the end of the day, this isn't a, you know, this isn't an eighties movie where I get struck by lightning and switch characters with the 16 year old. And all of a sudden now I'm living their life. So it, it really behooves us to inject that lived experience into how we're even thinking about platforms because even the way we write uh, any kind of guidelines for, for social media platforms, we tend to use terms like community guidelines. And the question I always think about is, well, 
are these community guidelines? Are they really drawn from the larger community? Or is that something that is taken more from a uh, top-down approach of here's the platform and here's what they're determining is going to be the community? And I have to say, it's not always easy to match those, those two up. And, and a good example I, I always think about is uh, with Tumblr. So you remember Tumblr used to be a really uh, popular, uh, you know, platform for the teen yeah. audience. Less popular now, and it sold recently for for small pittance of how it originally sold for for a billion dollars uh, to to Yahoo a bunch of years ago. But what's interesting about Tumblr is an issue they had about a year and a half ago uh, is that they were trying to lessen nudity on their platform. And you would argue, okay, that's a that's a pretty slam dunk case, right? Like we, we're a platform, we we target you know or attract a younger audience, therefore we, we shouldn't have nudity on this. Also, more importantly, the way that you have gatekeepers that that actually uh, affect the the uh, the behavior of social media companies, Apple has a lot of power, right? Apple through their App Store. So. Tumblr got kicked off the app store because they weren't doing a, a good enough job, at least in Apple's determination around uh, nudity or, you know. So their, their trust and safety team then said, okay, let's, let's knock off more nudity. But what ended up happening is their audience that they had built up at the time saw nudity in a, in a, in a different light and was, was saying, well, this was kind of like, non-traditional sexual expression. And the audience actually kind of revolted as soon as they, as soon as the trust and safety team said, hey, we, we're gonna crack down on nudity in order to get back on the app store. So sometimes you're, you're in a very delicate position in terms of how do you understand the community? Are you creating a uniform standard across all different boards? Or do all social media platforms create their own kind of unique community? In other words, right now as a country, and now even as a global body, we're oftentimes debating where's the appropriateness on social media. If only it was that easy, right? Because you also have the issue of right. people have their own dramatically different opinions about what is appropriate on social media. And then you know, even, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, David, my apologies. I, I find this so fascinating. So um, forgive me for jumping yeah, in. But please. on this on this specific point, I mean, I go out and I do these professional development lectures for educators and trying to alert them to the risks that they face. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I point out to them is that social media companies do have different yes. levels of tolerance for what they will display. And Ironically, people are always shocked to find that Pinterest is one of the looser ones in terms of the content that they will allow. And I think as a society, we, we are grappling with this because the disproportionate power of these social media platforms to gauge or to regulate the speech content is mm -hmm. a challenge. Like, for instance, I know that Instagram is enormously popular with artists. Many use yes. it as de facto gallery space. Comes as no great shock that a lot of art is often challenging in terms of nudity mm -hmm. and so forth. And so I think that the social media platforms themselves grapple with the, the capitalistic financial advantages of having lots and lots of users. And Tumblr is a great example. But when they make a decision yeah. that's more restrictive, they risk that. And I'm, you know, TikTok is 
early enough in its development stages that they they haven't sorted out all of those answers yet. But I see them in kind of a limbo space in terms of what they allow and don't allow. And this is relevant for parents whose kids are creating videos and searching for videos uh, on the platform. Yeah. Yeah, Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jethro. Well, if I can just interject here, it seems that perhaps there a lot of people are talking and maybe I'm jumping the gun here. A lot of people are talking about regulating uh, social media providers as like public utilities. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that that's the right choice either, but perhaps there's room for creating a new type of corporation that is more than that has different rules and procedures than a regular, you know, just any kind of private business that could, Mm -hmm. you know, help us, uh, make some plans about how to engage with them appropriately. And, you know, when, when somebody's just creating something in their basement, you know, some social media company in their basement, they, they don't have the foresight to see where it could lead. However, if we really value people creating competing platforms, which I think we do, and Mm -hmm. making sure that they are safe, in, in many different descriptions, say for kids, say for adults, say for democracy, et cetera, then it seems like there could be some wisdom in creating that different kind of place for that. Yeah. Yeah. Because something, uh, you know, that, that's interesting, especially right now with people discussing Section 230, is that social media oftentimes is an amalgamation of all these different characteristics. A lot of times people like to refer to it and they say, well, media is right in its name. Therefore, it's social, social media, a media company. And the answer to that is, is, is no, as it's currently written. Uh, but a lot of that's also because a media company edits information through the journalists who already have an ethical code that they're following. And then the editing process then causes certain aspects to get published out. So you have filtration and then you have publishing where social media actually works in the exact opposite fashion based on just scalability and speed. So you're actually publishing and then you are filtering. Therein sometimes lies the rub because that's why a lot of uh, platforms are discussing friction right now because we've seen a lot of issues that happen from our very nature of saying, okay, let's put most everything on outside of kind of you know AI that we might use to filter on early and then really depend on self-reporting tools that we push out to to individuals on a platform to help you know uh, push push out some of this but we've seen flaws in that system you know i always think back to the christchurch uh, incident and how youtube was really exploited there because what bad actors did is they just constantly refreshed and because youtube was based on hey let's get new videos out there and then filter and then filter it allowed bad actors to constantly download this this traumatic video and then populate it throughout the, the, the larger ecosystem of the web. So you've seen a lot of learnings from that. But the, the tricky part that I always think about is in determining what social media is, we always think of analogies. So for example, how we met, might have originally thought of the web or sorry, uh, social media was kind of closer to the telephone because that's why we're thinking, hey, it's a, it's a conduit for some larger level of information. And when we think about a telephone conversation, you actually would not want the telephone company to say, hey, this person is swearing. Hey, this person is talking about you know, some really bad stuff. So in other words, you can talk about really terrible things on a telephone because we're viewing that as private communication. And we're viewing the telephone company as providing utility and not getting involved in as an in-between 
kind of intermediary between the two. Where social media, we've now seen, well, wait a minute, it dramatically can affect the larger conversation because it's a, because of its amplification. So there's a lot to unpack, but the, the part that I really wanna emphasize, which I think needs more media attention, is this. And I, and I see this, like I have a slide, you know, remember pre-COVID when we were given slides and stuff? Well, I have a, a slide that, that, it, that shows social media companies in between a rock and a hard place and it has Homer Simpson constantly going back and forth. So people find it kind of funny, but, it, but it's also true. And it's true in this. And this is the Gordian knot that, that I think we're, we are struggling with. Is that on one hand, everything we're talking about, especially if we're talking about a younger audience on social media, it's usually can be boiled down to a statement of saying, hey, Facebook, hey, TikTok, hey, you know, fill in the blank. Why don't you act more? Why don't you do more to prevent X? Why don't you do X, right? Why is there misinformation? Why is this person having a challenge that's potentially dangerous? Why is this happening, right? So we're saying it's about more action from a social media company. However, when a social media company acts, it's also then showcasing a certain amount of power because if it acts to say, this is appropriate, this is inappropriate, that's a, that's a judgment call uh, of a, a societal kind of norm about what appropriate is, right? It's determining where that line, line is. And then you usually have the general public push back to say, well, how dare Facebook make this decision? Who are they to, to, to have this power? Isn't that consolidated power? Especially what I talked about with Zuckerberg's kind of a massive amount of control based on the two levels of stocks that, that he has, right? So you have social media companies that are being told to act more, but then they don't necessarily have moral authority to act. So that's why I always connect it back to democracy because the way we've set up the growth of at least the US democracy is we think of elected officials as acting on behalf of the, the public. And we're giving, we're transferring power away from us as an individual. And we're pushing that over to, to make a, a scalable system of, of kind of representative government where you have a politician who's supposed to represent my voice. And the idea would be there's accountability and there's transparency. And that's why you have to have certain people there and you can read about what's, what's occurring. And you can also vote that person out of office. Hey, they're not following what, what I wanted them to, to do. So I think social media is, is kind of in that weird place where people are realizing, well, we want them to exercise this almost kind of like politician level power, yet we haven't worked out the kinks with, with what that means in terms of power. And power <laughs> goes back to transparency and accountability. So, so in other words, social media companies, at least in my perspective, are constantly trying to play this like delicate dance of, okay, well, you know, content moderation, it's not as simple as making sure you take down enough. It's also making sure that you don't take down too much because if you take down too much, that's another issue. There was that, that even happened, you know, uh, you know, on, on TikTok around, you know, how much skin was being shown by, right. by certain women and, and that became its own issue, right? So this, this constantly going to be a lot of debates around appropriateness. Well, let me give you a couple of things to, to tie into that. I think number one, you know, we still have kinks in our actual democracy and that's 260 yes. odd years old yes. and social media has only been around for about mm -hmm. 20. So, you know, and that's a generous description. Mm -hmm. So it's not surprising that we've got a lot of stuff to sort out. I think that 
what is causing some of the problems. Well, for starters, let's focus on the fact that Facebook all by itself is the largest entity in terms of users on the planet. I mean, Mm -hmm. bigger than India, bigger than China, all the rest of it. So it's not surprising that it has this outsized power. From one perspective, David, people could say that Facebook is actually the epitome of democratization, right? Mm -hmm. Because there are no gatekeepers to what you post until Mm -hmm. the filters kick in. But when I click send on the keyboard, my voice is heard. And so it is in some ways the rawest manifestation of democracy. I think one of the issues that has driven Jethro and I to do the work that we're doing is that the fundamental issue is whether or not the people actually using social media are doing so in an ethical slash moral fashion. Because Mm -hmm. in an ideal world, of course, if they were, all of these social media problems would go away. So, but, but then, you know, then you question the first amendment, is it moral or ethical to have, for instance, an anti-Semitic or anti-Islamic or whatever mm-hmm. opinion, that may not be an a, a ethical failing, but mm-hmm. then is it unethical to share that publicly as you do? And right. then you've got the second level of ethics, which is, are the social media companies behaving in an ethical fashion mm-hmm. to their users and potentially to the society in which they function? Which now, of course, for Facebook is every society on the planet. Right, right. And, and the same for TikTok. So you know, the, the layers of this are brutal. There, there are a lot of layers because you're also getting to the point of if, if a social media company, and this is even how we thought originally of the growth of the web, right? It's out, it doesn't have the same borders as a country has. So, right. so I'm really viewing 2021 as this, this battle between traditional nation states that are saying, here's our country borders, here's our norm, cultural norms, you're within this country. And, but then you're having social media that's saying, yeah, maybe I started in California, right? But it, it, or I guess previously with dorm room in, in Harvard and then, and then grown, but, but is, it, is it something that's a little larger? Because the very growth of the web, if you go back in, in Google uh, Cyberspace Manifesto, right? If you look at that, which is highly influential and did take that more kind of libertarian ethos, that viewed government as, as kind of, hey, it's hands off, that we're creating a global community. And that really the, the biggest advocates early on with the web were actually looking forward to a time of saying, we can remove this. Imagine, you know, go back to John Lennon, right? Imagine there's no country, right? Like we're, we're actually creating a space where, where Facebook is its own type of like global community. And I think social media companies, they're really in a, in a tight position because they constantly have to determine, okay, well, if we have this kind of American imprint, because that's where we were raised for, for a lot of the, the management, it's tough because then, then you say, okay, well, what if in a country like Turkey, where Facebook's had a lot of issues, well, how do we balance the, the cultural norms? Do we, do we set a baseline? This is kind of this idea of like, is there an objective standard that, of civility that you would want to have? Is there an objective standard of you know, making sure that, that it's not too, too repressive? And this is the issue that, that obviously people have always had with how they relate to different countries you know, uh, with, with social media. So it's tough because you wouldn't want to create something 
like if you're an American, you create a social media company, you wouldn't want to that to be used as like a repressive tool in, in another country. But then at the same time, you're, you, you, you're realizing, wait a minute, like here I am an American, I don't want to totally westernize the entire kind of platform throughout. So platforms are constantly trying to determine, okay, well, I'm in all these countries throughout the world. So when we're in this country, how do we think differently about content moderation? How do we relate when we're getting requests from their, their government about blasphemy? Right. So what do we what do we do? It's it's really quite, quite tricky. So I think that's always the balance. And one area that, that I thought was pretty fascinating is that Facebook actually sometimes has gone above and beyond the American free speech standard. And most times people think it's the opposite. Right. But with something like <clears throat> Holocaust denialism, Zuckerberg famously <clears throat> a couple of years ago said, no, we're here's why we are uh, allowing it on our platform and then got a lot of negative pushback from that. But under, under US law, right, we, we do allow that. It's different than like in Germany where that would be outlawed. Whereas then F uh, Facebook recently uh, reversed their decision on that to say, you know, you can't deny, you know, an, an objective truth. The Holocaust happened, right? You can't, you know, uh, push this misinformation otherwise, and that that can have harmful effects. So I think that was a pretty fascinating way of, of how we balance this. But but I know I also want to kind of come back to the education component, especially with 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 a teen audience. And where I'm really seeing this is going to be a, an interesting position is we want to make sure that that teens who are on a platform are more than quote unquote users. So if I have one goal, when I come, hopefully I'll come back maybe maybe next year on this podcast, and, and I will be happy if we're no longer using the term users, and we don't have a, a correct new term to push push out yet. However, I would say how we're relating, especially how we want teens to be empowered and engaged and digital citizens, we're thinking of them as something different than a user, right? A user is if I, I buy a hammer and I can use it differently, and that's sometimes the analogy we we like to use. We say. Well, you know, social media is like a hammer. You can you can build a house or you can hit somebody over the head. It can be dangerous, right? However, that's not exactly how social media works because the hammer is constantly changing. And we as a user are actually changing the very product. So social media is not only impacting us as individuals, but our very behavior on the platform is what actually evolves and changes the very platform, right? So, so that means that our relationship as a as an individual on social media is very is very akin to an ecosystem where you know where <laughs> what animal somebody's eating or how they're grazing it's affecting the overall ecosystem. It's complex. It's a, it's a living, breathing kind of kind of way, especially around information ecosystem. So, I really think with educators and parents and students, there needs to be a little bit more kind of uh, push towards saying, what's their role and how do they affect the future of, of social media? Well, David, I think one of the things that pops to mind immediately, given the stuff I've seen with teens, is you should start calling them social media residents. Yes, and go yes. <laughs> that's what but they are. Yeah. Let me let me toss out one last question uh, mm -hmm. before we wrap up this great interview. Uh, you've been doing some work recently with IBM Watson, and I'd love yes. to just have you close us out with a little description of what you're doing. Sure. Yeah. I, you know, uh, luckily in my, in my career, I get a multitude of, of involvement and in, in some of the work I've done 
is through a consultancy agency that works with, uh, with, with IBM as one of its, its clients. And through that, uh, I've had the, the opportunity and, pr and privilege to, uh, to be an editorial producer for uh, one of their podcasts, IBM Think Leaders. Uh, and then I've uh, been kind of working on some, some future projects along those lines as well, because I think there's a huge need on uh, educating right? Educating the general public on a lot of these issues and really demystifying it. So when I think about a lot of IBM Watson's work with AI, I think there's a huge need to demystify it because oftentimes we think of AI as like, you know, hey, it's, it's, it's outside of our human control. Whereas if we really look at a lot of the discussion around human in a loop and, and, and algorithmic bias, it's talking about like grabbing historical data and that's inherently flawed from, from our own human behavior, right? So that's that's the connective tissue with, with the work that I'm, you know, that I do there, but also even with Altic is Human, is that the very name, why, you know, it's called Altic is Human, is on kind of this demystifying kind of fact of, of AI, right? It's saying that we shouldn't just view social media or AI or anything as if it's just set it and forget it. It's just, it's just happening. And, and at least in my experience, especially as the growth of my career over the last decade, I've really seen that as a hurdle to, to improving on this issue is that oftentimes people think that the future, our tech future is, is already written, right? So singularity is near, this is just going to happen. Social media is just going to go this way and people are just people. We oftentimes say that, right? Well, people are just people, what, what can you do? Well, here I am sitting in New York City, a lot of, there's a lot of debate around how does crime alter? Because it's, if you look at New York City, you know, now versus 1980 and the 90s, dramatically a lower crime rate. But now people are worried about how that can increase and is it connected with COVID? So it's complex, but it also shows you that, guess what? People are not just people, right? Because if that were true, then a crime rate would stay stagnant or it would at least be directly connected with population. Well, the population in New York City has been relatively the same, around 8 million. So that means that human behavior is very malleable to environmental cues. That's the learning. And that's why you need more social sciences involved. And that's why I'd also like to kind of pay, pay respect even for my own career. Although it was unique in, in, in certain respects, it was this kind of in-between connective tissue that I was doing. But one of the things that I've really you know, encountered throughout my, my time is that we've had so many people on the proverbial sidelines especially researchers, you know, I talk to researchers all the time or, and academics who have been involved in this space for 20 years. And they say, wait a minute, you know, I wish I had more uh, effect on the social change because this is my life's work, right? So that's one thing that I would just like to relay is that there was so many passionate people and, and great solutions that we can have towards, towards improving and especially changing the environmental cues to improve social media. But what is necessary is taking those voices off the sidelines, creating a system where those individuals can affect the power structure of, of change, and, and that's that's everything that I that I do in my life, and that's why you know it's uh, you know thank you for, for having me on. It's been uh, you know uh, a great uh, great discussion, and I think that we only need more of this because there's so much to do. Yet at the same time, I'm optimistic because I you know constantly on. Uh, whether, you know, show like this or, or, or something else where you say, wait a minute, like there's also a lot of activity that, that's happening in this space. 
Well, David, we really appreciate your time. And I am sure that this will not be our last conversation. I it better not be. To... I'll be back. <laughs> I, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on, on AI and, and some of the social yes. changes that we'll see, you know, particularly after you and Watson have become buddies. And I'm sure we'll have some <laughs> chats along those lines. Watson right. will help me out on Jeopardy, you know. Oh, yeah. That would be great. Yeah. <laughs> that, folks, wraps up this fascinating episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, ethics, and the challenge of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you will follow along and share the show with a friend or colleague. If you'd like to reach out to us and give us topic suggestions or guest suggestions, we'd love to have that. And uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. If you're still listening, you must have loved this conversation like we did. Definitely going to have David back. And uh, please share this with a friend. Please leave us a five-star rating and review in your podcast service of choice. Thank you for joining us today. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.